Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Trick Podcast with Joey and Goso TV and this beautiful Saturday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I have uh, my neighbor's dog here joining us, so I'm sure he'll be fine in a few minutes. But uh, just enjoying this beautiful day, thinking about just my desire and always my number one passion to teach, equip, and to share knowledge. I think that knowledge combined with spirit is power and so we have to combine the two we can't deny the need to understand what especially when it comes to this topic of trauma what the mind the brain the body do and and then of course we cannot deny the need for spirit and I'm not one that says that you have to only do one that if you are just this amazing, intelligent person that you'll be able to heal yourself, no way. Nor am I of the kind that says that all you have to do is pray. Yes, of course. But it says that Jesus, he grew in wisdom and stature. So we're talking about the physical part, the stature. He grew in physically, he grew physically in physical power and in wisdom. So wisdom comes from from knowledge, from studying, from all the wisdom literature that's been written, most of all from the Word of God. But sometimes we also can find truth in a lot of especially medical things. It's, it, would, it would be like saying that learning about healthy eating is not good, that we shouldn't eat healthy foods or grains or nutritious foods because it has to be in the Bible, like the Daniel diet or something. Well, all of that you could say is in the Bible, but sometimes we need skills that can help us further understand what we're going through. And I especially like to talk to young people because I think younger people are very open to the the wisdom that is found in, in different areas. Uh, areas of study. So I'm talking today about The Body Keeps a Score, which is this book that I've written, I've written, that I've read. <laughs> I wish I'd written it. It is a New York Times bestseller. And you'll see it here on the screen. And I have a book summary of what this is about. And so it says it's written by Bessel van der Kolk, a medical doctor. And the quote down there, it says, a masterpiece, maybe you can't read it, it says, a masterpiece that combines the boundless curiosity of the scientists, the erudition of the scholar, meaning the knowledge or the wisdom, and the passion of the truth teller. How about that? It's a book that, as I said, I've read and uh, very, very powerful called The Body Keeps a Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. Now, I think that a lot of people, from what I've noticed, maybe it's a cultural thing, don't like to acknowledge their trauma or maybe they think that being a Christian is enough. And of course, always, I think that following Jesus and community with other people that have been through similar things is what heals us eventually at some point, no, no doubt about it. But at the same time, I do believe that, as I said, that we have to understand why our bodies do what they do. And so... And trauma is something that many of us, myself included, perhaps you, someone you know, someone you love, has been through. What are we talking about? When, what are we talking about when it comes to trauma? Well, there are those three things. It could be brain trauma, memories that impacted you tremendously. Of maybe you you heard something that was said to you when you were young. You're you mount up to nothing. You'll never do anything great in life. It could be your mind, same thing. But now we're talking more about the the emotional part of it. You maybe saw your mom or your dad beat your mom. Or maybe you saw your mom be a very anxious, nervous person. So your mind, your spirit begins to store that. And then your body, of course. You might have been through illness or you saw someone else's illness your mom your dad your parents your siblings someone you love and so that traumatic body experience maybe was violent it gets stored in your body as trauma and then it comes out in alcoholism drug addiction in violence gangs 
in promiscuity, in loneliness, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, you name it, all kinds of disease. It could be, it could come out in perfectionism. You want to be so perfect. And so you want to do all the right things in school or church or your personal life, your body. It comes out in many, many ways. And so all these things are very important to discuss and to try to understand kind of what's going on with our bodies. So here's a little bit of this book summary. So let's read this and I'll try to... uh, read here or to make this as big or as possible as big as possible so that we can follow along and so it says here Bessel van der Kolk is the preeminent neuroscientist most influencing our understanding of trauma as the cause of so many mental health issues for that reason alone the book is worth reading but there is so much more so let me pause there so as I said this is very important to understand because especially post-pandemic We're going to experience, I would say in the next maybe year or two or maybe 10 years, the coming out of the mental health issues post-pandemic. And they may be anything from racism and violence to political unrest to capitalism and hedonism and or religious over-spirituality. You could become a religious zealot someone who thinks that you have to go to your church to to be saved or any of the excesses that can happen in religion and in spirituality and so whereas jesus of course he wants us to be healed and he wants us to live in love and to love one another but as i said these issues are are real and they're very important for us to to talk about and to understand so it says here that these that these traumas can sometimes come out, as it says on there, as mental health issues. For that reason alone, okay. It says Van der Kolk's extensive use of case examples from this from his therapy experiences powerfully expand this understanding. He uses simple terminology such as calling the primitive brain the fire alarm. How about that? What a great term, right? The fire alarm. So when you're angry at your husband or at your friend or at your mom or at yourself and you don't even know why that's because the fire alarm the brain some call, some call it the reptile brain the false self i think in the bible we call it sin or the the devil those that that dark part of us some call it the shadow or the dark self or the shadow self and so that fire alarm kind of goes off and we become this monster that we don't even know where it came from. So it says, which can help our clients understand the brain impact of adverse experiences, particularly childhood abuse and neglect. This book is a history of his career as a psychiatrist, researcher, and therapist, and as such becomes a history of the mental health field over the last 30 years. I, Bonnie, began practice over 40 years ago, so remember many of the changes and their impact on our on that's not written right on our field or on the field i recall the same excitement he shares at being able to use medications early such as the early antidepressants to help people and this again can be controversial i have been on antidepressants for many years and it has helped me sometimes i come off of them for months and i'm good and then i can tend to feel a little too low for my own liking and so i'll go back to them They've definitely helped me. I don't think it's a cure-all, and you have to obviously be aware of the side effects and even your spiritual, I guess, opinion when it comes to to antidepressants. But I think that these are tools that God has given us to help us. I also agree about what we as a field have lost with the reductionist view of mental illness as a brain disease. This is really important because I think that with us empaths showing up in especially online talking about mental health we don't see it as just some sort of brain chemistry thing we realize that anxiety depression loneliness sadness comes from experiences that we've been through memories and no matter how much we try to avoid them or anesthetize ourselves or spiritualize things they continue to remain until we learn tools combining as i said wisdom the wisdom of these tools with the wisdom of god really all of it is the wisdom of god 
but I guess just for this exercise to combine spirit and mind and the body, all three, to be able to find find love and find peace as a society, as a culture, as a people, as a race. So it says that I also agree about what we as a field have lost with the reductionist view of mental illnesses of brain disease. This led to primarily treatment by drugs to fix a chemical imbalance, now debunked, but still a part of our culture. Very, very important. So I never went to antidepressants without spiritual counseling. It wasn't just therapy of, as, I, as it says here, of just the mind or just the body, but it was spiritual. We would pray together. We would talk about examples of Jesus and Moses, and and it, it helped me to bring my whole life together under the love and the grace of God. And so, as all the wisdom people would say today, that all of it eventually has to lead you back to God, to spirit, to people call it the universe, or or the divine, or the, the, the I am, or whatever you want to call it, the Christ consciousness. But really, for us, especially of the Christian faith, we're talking about, at the end of the day, it is the wisdom and the knowledge of God that heals us, the love of God that heals us. But we sometimes need these tools to get us there. And so, versus spiritually bypassing, which is just jumping to the top of the, the front of the line without really understanding kind of what we're doing. And so it says here, this led to, okay, blah, blah. here's what he lists as losses from this paradigm shift. We have the capacity to heal each other that is equal to our capacity to destroy. Isn't that powerful and true, right? Language does give us a power to change, absolutely. Once you learn how to speak of what you've been through, and I talked about this, I think it was two days ago, about building a bigger box. When you can talk about what you've been through with wisdom and grace, you're able to change how you view yourself and how your kids, your friends, your your, your relatives can uh, can also speak uh, of their own lives. And so that language is so powerful. I believe in that wholeheartedly. And biblically speaking, I always like to combine these things with the Bible and spiritual truth. The Bible says that we're no longer who we used to be. We're now a new creation. So you could, so you could say that we now have a new language. We're no longer, we don't have to dress up as violent people anymore or act like we used to act or dress or, or behave like we used to behave when we were into gangs and violence and alcohol and, and, or being the perfect child. Now we can change our language to be the true us. And so that's awesome. We can regulate, let us see, our own physiology, meaning how our bodies react without drugs, meaning both illegal and legal, through breathing, moving and touching my goodness if we could just focus on that for the rest of our lives the power the healing power of love of moving of touching of breathing we're talking about non-sexual touching of course we're talking about appropriate touch now you could also talk about the adverse meaning because we don't breathe because we don't move and because we lack in touch that's why our bodies are so whacked out. I mean, this is just simple. Every morning I kiss my wife. And as I said, a non-sexual is just a love expression. Every morning I hold her hand. We pray together next to each other. Every morning when our, now they're adults, our kids, when they go to school or work or work out, I hug them, I embrace them, and I hold them for five, ten seconds. I put my cheek next to our daughter's cheeks. I kiss them on the forehead, on the nose. I, I embrace them. I help them breathe. I also encourage and, and try to model movement, exercise. All of these things are so important to the healing because these are the very things that we lacked when we were kids or that were stolen, the devil stole from us, or life or trauma, circumstances stole from us. And so to... To, re, to regain these things, we have to practice them in healthy and, in, as I said, non or in, a, in, a, in, a, in appropriate ways. Both, well, the breathing, which I would say is so powerful, especially if you practice yoga, but it can just be meditation, prayer. Prayer is a beautiful way to breathe. Movement, you could call that worship. It's that simple. When we worship God and we, we're moving, it's very powerful. And then touching, you could call it the welcome time at church 
where you're greeting one another. So these are just very, very practical things that the church practices, and especially, as I mentioned, post-pandemic, we definitely are, are we have lost. I mean, breathing? <laughs> oh, man. I remember the first week of the pandemic, I threw up. I was so scared. Pastor, seminary, 30 years of following Jesus, all these tools that I've learned since I was in my 20s, and yet my body just panicked. And it didn't know what to do except to just, boom, explode. What helped me was breathing. Breathing, learning to do yoga, practicing. Breathing, prayer, meditation, the Jesus-centered prayers, spiritual practices. Moving, as I said, exercise, walking, being active, being outside in nature and touching. But as I said, these are the very things that we have lost again because of the pandemic and etc. So letter D, we can change social conditions to help people feel safe and be able to thrive. I learned more about the history of DSM. It's profit rather than research-driven impetus. I don't know what DSM is. I think that's the name of his of his group and why he has not he was not successful in getting child developmental trauma in the DSMV after overwhelming research showing child mental illness has adverse experiences as its cause along with strong national support from child clinicians. Other child specialists share his helpful explanation of the loss of identity of self through trauma. Isn't that powerful? We lose our own identity through trauma. You don't know how to be yourself or you become this alter ego this gangster this perfect woman this this man who who overworks this child this woman who loses weight or doesn't even eat because or who gains so much weight because they have lost connection with their true identity as a child of god as loved by her parents as a woman as a young man who is loved by his dad who, who deserves uh, help and guidance. <coughs> I always, excuse me, I always tell people, my clients that I mentor and coach, I have a program that I do every month for especially young adults that I that I do called uh, Goso Living, just joy, basically. Goso means joy. Where I tell people, it shouldn't have been that way. That shouldn't have happened to you. When you're a child, you are expected to be cared for. You shouldn't have to care for your parents when you're eight or 12. That's not how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to have your parents take care of you. Really, for, for your whole life. Obviously, it changes. But now when that doesn't happen, now we have a rupture in the plan of God. This is God's plan. God's design was to have a man, a woman, and children as a... a I mean, offspring, but more than that, as the recipients of love, the parents, both of them, because a man has a certain way to do things, a woman, and when they're in perfect harmony with each other and with God, then love comes down and the kids are safe and they thrive. They have structure, they have boundaries, they have love, they have touch, they have breathing, they have movement. When there is trauma, because trauma just happens, such as what we just went through, there is safety that the parents can create because of their safety, because they've learned to work through their issues or they've learned to come together, not apart in the middle of stress. Now, when that's broken, which you could say happens 80% of the time, if not 90% of the time, then you have the results that come down to the kids and to the grandkids and to your kids and their kids, etc. But we can break that in Jesus' name. And that is what we're talking about here, how to break that. So, mm, more than all of this, however, we read about a man working and sharing from his heart, one who exemplifies a deep respect for suffering people and a commitment to healing the whole person in front of him. He's able to admit mistakes, which often then result in further learning, showing himself curious and continually searching for new and better ways to assist others. He writes with openness about his own personal experiences with EMDR. EMDR... We'll get into it, but it's a, um, I went through it and it helped me tremendously. It's a way through sound and basically through probes, electricity. It's, you could call it electric shock treatment <laughs> at a very low, low voltage. It 
opens up the trauma that is stored in you so that you can be healed. I went through it, I think maybe for a month or two, and it changed my life. I wish I was still doing it to some degree. And so we'll talk about that. Often leading to his next research and therapeutic interventions. We are all impressed with his passionate and heartfelt dedication to healing. Let me just pause here before I read part one. Let me just say, as I said earlier, that I truly believe that at the end of the day, it is the spirit that heals. Knowledge and tools can only do so much. You have to have the spirit of God. At the end of the day, these tools come from God because it's the wisdom of man. And it's not as, of course, as advanced as the wisdom of God. But we all know, of course, that the wisdom of God is shown through men, through people that love him, that honor him. And even those that don't, there are many people that would not even say that there is a God that can still speak the wisdom of God just from a different perspective. And because trauma and love and pain is something that everyone deals with. We all want love, joy, peace, unity, safety, uh, to have success, to be safe financially and, and emotionally and physically. So pain causes truth. Pain brings about truth. When you're in pain, you seek the truth. Or you can seek destruction. Or I don't think we seek it, but that's what's available. And so the devil does have a plan to destroy us, and he, ha and he is a liar. And so th these are the ways that we combat, that we fight against these, these enemies. Like the Bible says, we do not fight against flesh and blood. It's not just the trauma that you, that you went through that you're fighting against. You're fighting against spiritual forces that are using the traumatic that we've been through to destroy you, to have you kill yourself, or just live a horrible life of legalism, perfectionism, of fear, of anguish, of depression, whatever it may be. Or, as I said, of spiritual bypassing, trying to be the perfect spiritual, religious, Christian person. And so all of that are the tools of the enemy. And what he wants is to destroy us. But what God wants is to restore your life, to heal you in Jesus' name so that you become a wounded healer. Like my mentor, Henry Nowen, would say, that you and I become wounded healers, not perfect individuals that are trying to pass on perfectionism. Or you have to do these 10 things, or you have to go to church every day, or you have to be beautiful or thin or whatever it may be. Or giving into violence and drugs and alcohol and gangs and addictions and promiscuity and all the rest. But instead that we are becoming like Christ. And that these tools eventually, you could say we can leave them behind. In some ways, I would say these are tools of the, of the early, maybe of the, of the first few stages. When we're just learning to talk about what happened to us in a more positive way. And then at some point, I think we can shed them behind and live in the glory of peace and restoration and love. Uh, at the same time, according, depending on how deep your trauma was, or maybe how you, maybe you delayed the recovery or the understanding of it, you might have to go through this longer than other people. I would say for me, I'll always need these tools because the trauma that I went through was deep. And it was delayed. I didn't even realize it until maybe my late 20s and 30s, which, which is normal for most kids. And so, but as I mature in Christ, in my spiritual life, even as a grown man, as a pastor, and all these things that I've said, I can say that I am shedding more and more of these tools. And now I'm able to teach them more with a perspective of, I know they're helpful. They're not the end of all things, but they definitely are helpful. As I said, especially when we are just beginning to understand what the heck happened. And so part one, the rediscovery of trauma. The title of this section is significant, underlying the knowledge about trauma and mental health being discovered by Janet and others in the late 1800s. This is so powerful, and I have read maybe four or five books on the beginnings of mental health. You know how now that's like something that Debbie Lovato and Justin Bieber and everyone talks about? Well, obviously, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, this was taboo. It's still taboo. But when this actually began to be a thing was in the 1800s. And now there's a book that also was written around that same time called The Myth of Mental Health, which is kind of alluding to this. But anyway, I won't get, I won't get into that because I think there is an over-indexing, an overdoing right now 
when it comes to what mental health really is and how to heal it. And I think that young people, especially in their teens and early 20s, even if they don't deal with mental health issues, maybe they're just simply alone or bored, or maybe they had a breakup, or maybe they their face broke out. Normal things, they will, will say, oh, that must be my depression, because it's so pervasive. It, it becomes almost normative to talk about being depressed, especially a depressed teenager. You're not a depressed teenager. You're just a teenager. You're a young adult in your 20s trying to figure out your purpose and what to do now, or maybe you're trying to get pregnant or you are married and maybe your first year you went through a divorce, you went through a painful situation or financial issues or your parents are not doing well. You're just going through life. But so I think is I think that we can overdo this whole thing of being a mental health victim or dealing with mental health issues. So you have to understand kind of what is really happening. So Vander Kolk's early research on veterans is impactful. I think I can highlight things, right? Is that? There we go. So there we go. So that is very important. I'm not a veteran, but I think that it's important to understand that this in some way started because of World War I and World War II. Of course, 1800s was even before that. But my point is that society began to notice people with a war background and this is part of my story i went through a war so i'm a veteran you could say not in a typical way but we're talking about things that kind of started this or kind of that 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 put this forward that initiated this that and so being a veteran or going through a war is sort of what stimulated i guess maybe is the word i was thinking of some of these problems and so being a veteran or going through war now i guess you could say i guess to go off on this a little bit that what we've been through these last two three years with the pandemic and we're still going through is like going through a war you have very similar feelings and and reactions this global thing this fear of the unknown this never-ending war with a virus with the government with masks with vaccines now i wouldn't say that's the same thing as what ukrainian or russian kids are going through or what syrian kids have been through or palestinian kids or israeli kids or nicaraguan kids or whatever i mean so i wouldn't say it's the same thing having been through both pandemic and an actual war i wouldn't say it's the same but there are very there are a lot of similarities there are very similar in terms of as i said the 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 sense of the unknown, like what is going on and how do I and how does this end? So you do have this kind of similar trauma that that I think war and this pandemic they have in common. So it says here, particularly the case example of the trauma distorted perceptions found in Rorschach tests. I don't know what those tests are. Since EMDR deals with perception, this was a concrete example of how trauma distorts the brain's reality very important your brain's inability to to see reality is the problem or let me put it another way the brain sometimes tells you this is reality even though everyone else around around you can say no it's not this is reality but you're convinced because your body your emotions your mind your soul your spirit you could say even is so convinced that you are never going to be successful, that you're always going to be at home, living at home, that you're never going to thrive, that no one will ever love you. You really believe in this reality as the truth. And you could say that it is true for you, but it is something that can be healed because that kind of thinking can lead to suicide, despair, or perfectionism, legalism, or this trying to be, as I said, this perfect child which is what i went through I, I didn't go down the path of of darkness or maybe of um of gangs or alcohol but i went up <laughs> same thing though i thought i had to be perfect and become this perfect kid and perfect immigrant and have a perfect life in order to feel safe because my perception of reality was so distorted that i thought that i wouldn't be loved unless i could or maybe even it wasn't love. I think it was, yeah, love, but safe. I wouldn't be safe unless I did all the right things. 
And when I didn't do the right things, then I was in danger of death. So that's what our brain does when it comes to reality, distorts our reality. And so it says these early experiences later helped him, meaning the author. Can I get rid of these? I don't know. I think I can. I think I can. I don't know how to get rid of the highlights now. There we go. Okay. So these early experiences later helped him to have a trauma lens when he began working with survivors of incest. Now we're talking about very, very painful and very personal things. I haven't been through this, but these are things that are very sensitive, of course. But this is where it began. Incest, because of the close nature of of families and of the trauma and the the horror of these things, as well as the the pro, or the the impact that uh, being a veteran or going through a war had on people. So he says he saw their experiences very differently than the prevailing dismissive approach of the mental health field at the time. Most quote most human suffering relates to love and loss. So the therapist's job is to help people acknowledge experience and bear the reality of life with all its pleasures. And heartbreak. He goes on to say that we can't better until we know. There's some words missing here. We can't get. Oh, it says get better. <laughs> it was my fault. He goes on to say that we can't get better until we know what we know and feel what we feel. Recognizing the tremendous courage and strength it takes to remember. That is so powerful. Really, I mean, that's a quote for the centuries, right? First of all, this one. Most human suffering relates to love and loss. So let's just stop there. Love, love and loss. The, the need for love and the lack of love, the loss of love. Even no matter how hardened you are against your mom, your dad, against your siblings, the government, whatever, whoever you hate, whoever harmed you. At the end of the day is you wanted that person's love, especially, as I said, as a child. It, you, you shouldn't have to love your parents more than they love you. You shouldn't have to do without love when you're 8, 10, 12, heck, 15, 20, 25, 55. Because it's not how God meant it to be. From Adam and Eve, we know that God meant for humanity to be in love and in relationship with each other and with himself. And with nature, you could say, with creation. Well, no, you couldn't say. It is what God meant from the beginning for us to rule and to be, you could say, stewards and, and caretakers of the world, of the earth. But that was broken. And sin, death, trauma, Satan, life, pain, circumstances, people, even from people that we love, have uh, broken that. But we can heal that wound and repair that wound. So this most human suffering relates to love and loss. So the therapist's job is to help people acknowledge, experience, and bear the reality of life. I love that. Me as a coach, as a life coach, as a spiritual life coach, my job when I help people, I help many people. I have a monthly program, as I mentioned. I, my heart, my training, my experience is to help you acknowledge, yes, it happened. It shouldn't have been. Experience, ow. I don't want to remember this, but I have to go back there so I can heal and bear the reality of life. So now we're talking about having creating a bigger box, I like to say, meaning that you can talk about the trauma, but you're not overwhelmed or defeated or, or killed by it or reacting to it all the time. And you can also and or you can also talk about the pleasures and the heartbreak of life without being hedonistic about it and wanting every woman out there or every pair of shoes or every perfect Bible study or whatever it may be. But you can also acknowledge it's heartbreak. He goes on to say that we can't get better until we know what we know and feel what we feel. So powerful. We have to know what we know. Like, okay, this happened. Okay, I understand what happened. It shouldn't have been that way. That's not what should have happened. Oh, this is what I went through. Oh, this is what I felt. Oh, wow, that felt scary. And I shouldn't have been. I should feel safe. But now that I understand it, I feel safe in the arms of God, in the arms of my wife, in the arms of my, my own life. And you can continue to heal. Recognizing the tremendous courage and strength it takes to remember. Yep. Part two, this is your brain on trauma. <laughs> like the old drug uh, commercials. This is, your, this is your, like the eggs, remember. This is your brain on drugs. This is your brain on trauma. 
Here he shares that our brain's adaptive response to stress leads to action and how trauma can overwhelm its healthy adaptive response. Very, very powerful. Once again, he shares that our brain's adaptive response to stress leads to action. So normally when you're under stress, you have a car coming at you, you have maybe someone, you're in a dark alley and you see someone and you're afraid, right? Your, your brain naturally creates stress. It creates this fight or flight or freeze reaction response. The brain does this and all these things that are in the brain, in your brain are God-given. But when trauma happens, then your brain suddenly can't quite adapt. It doesn't quite respond as it should. It responds, it responds from the trauma. So you no longer are responding to these, the stress and are able to adapt or find a solution or fight or whatever. Now you're responding to that stress, but from the lens or from the perspective of your trauma. So now when your mom is, let's say she is supposed to come home at 5 p.m. and it's 5.30, you're not thinking, oh, traffic. You're not thinking, oh, okay, well, maybe she went to the store. Because of the trauma of you being left when you were a kid, you're a child. Now you're seeing that 5.30 and that, that event that is stressful to you through the lens of your trauma. And so it's amplified and really it blinds, as it says here. It can, it can distort your, your, your ability to adapt or to respond to stress in a normal way. And how trauma can overwhelm this healthy adaptive response. So trauma overwhelms it. You, you can't, it's like me throwing up when the pandemic happened. That was a response to my trauma. I'm sure you didn't throw up when, in the first month. Maybe you had other responses. But I wasn't responding to that, those news, to that first month. I was responding to my trauma. And it blinded me. It, it kept me from properly adapting to the news and all that stuff. So this supports Francine Shapiro's Adaptive Information Processing AIP. Is that what they were talking about earlier, AIP? I don't think so. DSM, yeah, DSM. So this reports Francine Shapiro's adaptive information processing theory of EMDR therapy that the brain moves toward health just like the rest of the body unless blocked or hindered. Very, very true. This is such good news. No matter what you've been through, no matter what your family has been through, no matter what your parents have been through, the brain is constantly adapting. I mean, look at us. Here we are in the, in the middle of a pandemic or post, and we're like, okay, how do we survive? How do we go back to life? How do we go back to normal things and go out again and eat, go to the movies, just back to your normal life? Because the brain is always wanting health and love and peace and enjoyment. That's what's beautiful about how God created us. That's the image of God in us. He didn't create us to become monsters and to hate each other and to become violent. He created us to love one another, to, to, to create this beautiful earth, to have heaven on earth. As I said in Genesis 1, to rule and to be overseers and stewards of this beautiful life that we've been given. What a, I love my life. I don't just love my life. I love life. But when trauma hinders you, when it blocks you, when all you see is trauma, or even when you're running away from the trauma because of your own adaptive ways, you want to run away from it or ignore it or numb it or become a perfect kid, then we are distorting. We can't see the enjoyment of life. We see it as negative. Life, life is horrible. Or I'm never going to mount up to anything. Or when I graduate from school, I'm never going to get a job. Or, or I never even went to school, so I'm a failure. So all these things that come from our trauma, they blind us. And so as it says on here, the, but the good news is that the brain is constantly trying to adapt. And so it says here, that, and that's what EMDR does, by the way. And that's what I went through, that therapy, as I mentioned. The brain moves towards, toward health like the rest of the body. Isn't that wonderful? Just like your body wants to heal and wants to, tells you, hey, don't eat that pizza or that burger or that burrito. So does our, our brain says, look for peace. Look, that person is, is the right person for you. Oh, this job is stressful. Run from that. Or this, this wake up at 6 a.m. and go for a run. Your, your mind tells you. It's pointing you, hinting, and we have to obey the mind, at least a healthy mind. And so it says, unless blocked or hindered. So that's the problem. So his example of a child who survived 9-11 
and drew a picture seen around the world of people jumping from the tower shows the health, <clears throat> healthy results of taking action while being in the secure presence of caregivers. Beautiful, beautiful moment. It's talking here about a child that her, her, her parents died in 9-11, but she, instead of having nightmares about it, I don't remember the story, but she was able to, in the presence of caregivers, isn't that a beautiful phrase? Someone who's giving you care, a thing that you should have received and you can still receive. She was able to draw something very tragic, but in a safe environment and grieve it and be healed from that trauma. Shows a healthy result of taking action while being in the secure presence of caregivers. In contrast, traumatized people often get stuck in powerlessness. Yep, I went through that. I still go through that at times. Some people, they go to powerlessness. Others go to power, to take power and to not let, other, not let anyone control them. And so they'll do whatever it takes to be in control of their lives. Even spiritual people. To be in control of their schedule and to make sure that they follow all the rules and do whatever the church tells them. And they can't think for themselves because they're afraid that if they leave the, the structure that they will become powerless or they will become destructive. And, and I think there's a, a good, a good, there's a place for structure, of course. And as I said, I think all of, these are, all of these are training wheels. As we mature in healing from the inside out, you begin to say, you know, I don't need to go to 10 Bible studies. I don't need to read the Bible for three hours a day. I can just do it when I want to. I don't have to become this hedonistic drink drunk. I don't have to become a violent person or dress like I used to. I can be the true me. So you begin to shed, as I said, some of these early tools, some of these training wheels. Contrast traumatized people often get stuck in powerlessness. Yes, either by being prevented or unable to take action. <laughs> very, very true. Isn't that so true? Sometimes someone else is preventing it. Let's say if you are in a war, a political problem, or like we just went through, you're prevented from going out with friends to a restaurant because of what was happening with this pandemic. And so that's trauma. When you can't do what you want to do because someone else, even if it's the government or even if it's because it's for your own good, like the CDC or the ADH, World WH, World Health something, whatever it is. The CDC and the, I think it's WH, right? World Health something. When someone else tells you what you can and cannot do, it's traumatizing. And that's why so many people fought against all this stuff, right? You can kind of understand people saying, I don't want to be traumatized. Some people may be thinking or saying, maybe, maybe rightly so, who knows, that they would rather die than be traumatized by feeling powerless. Very interesting. Robbie Adler Tapia, EMDR author, trainer, and child welfare expert told us in her specialty workshop that the key negative cognition Negative cognition means thinking wrong things or wrong thoughts or, ta or having your brain tell you the wrong thing. For children, it's powerlessness. Isn't that so true? Think of the pandemic. Think of what you went through. Think of horrible things like incest or war. When you're a child, to feel powerless, you can't do anything about it. It's horrible. As an adult, when I feel powerless because of trauma, because of blah, blah, it's the worst feeling ever. That's what leads to suicide and depression and or to addictions. It's when you feel powerless. Do you feel powerless today? That is what we're talking about. Is how to feel powerful in Christ. Free is a better word. It's not. I, I wouldn't say that the antonym or the opposite of powerlessness is powerful. I would say it's freedom. It's the ability to be healed, to to choose. I don't want to go back to that job. I don't want to be in that relationship. And I can exercise my power to get away from you, to get away from that job, to not go to church eight times a day, to, to, to say, yes, I need help, to, to be angry. Some people, especially back to religious people, spiritual people, I am one of them, can, can feel guilty when they feel sexual thoughts, 
materialistic thoughts, like I want that watch, I want those shoes, or anger, any really negative emotion. When you deal with that trauma, you begin to be free from those things. Because, as it says here, when you feel powerless, especially as a child, it's the worst thing ever. And sometimes I think we act out of that sense of powerlessness. Peter Levine, Waking the Tiger, furthers our understanding of how trauma gets stuck in the body by clarifying how we differ from the animal kingdom and our response to stress. Animals who survive an attack by predators will get up, physically shake it off, and run away. Something that is difficult for humans whose threats are not as obvious as a tiger, nor frequently not as... Nor, nor frequently, not as short-lived, as should be nor, as short-lived as a predator attack. Action is key to healing as it shuts down the fight-or-flight survival mechanism, signaling safety. So beautiful. I'm reading kind of fast, I'm sorry. But what it's saying here is that action is a key to healing. There's nothing, well, let's go back to the whole pandemic thing and how I reacted to that. So when I finally took action, let's just say the vaccine, and that was, what, a year and a half, two years later that we could get vaccinated? I don't know if you felt this way. Maybe you don't believe in vaccines. For me, it was, and maybe your action was to resist the whole thing, right? So either way, when I finally took action, for me, it was vaccination. I felt the beginning of my healing, mental and emotional healing. Maybe for you, when you went to that party regardless, and you're like, ah, forget the government and forget all this stuff. That was your way to take action as to shut down as it says here, action is key to healing. It shuts down that fight or flight survival mechanism. It signals safety. You're in control, right? That's what we all want is some semblance of control. I don't think that looking for that is wrong. You could call it looking for uh, taking action. There's nothing more powerful now. The reason why we don't take action, at least it happens to many people that I counsel, is because they, they, they said, well, it didn't, it didn't change anything. I took action. I told my dad that I didn't like the way she treated, he treated my, my mom, and so, but nothing happened. And so we sometimes stop or, or we get shy about taking action because we don't see the result. We think it doesn't work. But the true healing is not in the result, it's in the action itself because it's teaching you to be in control of your own feelings or of your own destiny to avoid, as it says here, the fight or flight. Because one of the people that I counsel, one of my clients, I had this mentorship program, as I said, especially for young adults that I do. If you'd like to be a part of it, please let me know. But she's talking about how when her parents would argue, she would just freeze. What she wanted to do was to speak up. And she was saying the reason why she often didn't speak up is because the one time she did, she got shut down. And so now in her 20s, she struggles with speaking up when there's pain at work or in her own life or people that she loves. So that's why taking action is so crucial. Imperfectly as it may be, you're nervous, you're shaking your boots, your boots, you're peeing your pants, whatever you want to call it. But to just take action. I remember the first time when I was in church meetings, when I finally fought back, I felt so free. I felt like a million bucks, like a lion, because I was no longer fighting or flighting or freezing. I was taking action. And sometimes action means you fight back. You punch back in an appropriate way. I'm not talking about physically per se, although that might have to be. But my point is you take action versus giving in to the trauma. Our primitive brain shared with other mammals is geared towards survival. If our normal response is blocked, trapped, held down, prevented, frozen out from action, our brain keeps secreting or secreting, meaning oozing out stress hormones. Isn't that the truth? This limits our PFC activity. I don't know what PFC means. Keeping our thinking brain offline while our amygdala, that's a part of our limbic system, it says here, amygdala is what creates stress, a stress hormone, they call it. In limbic system, emotional survival brain remains in charge. Thus, PTSD, as post-traumatic stress disorder, is the body continuing to defend against a threat that belongs in the past. Well said. Knowing the difference between top-down and bottom-up regulation is central for understanding our treating and treating traumatic stress. That is so powerful. 
I'll end with this. I think I'm going to pause the stream here and maybe go back to this in the afternoon. I do need to go. But I'll just end with this amazing statement that our PTSD is the body continuing to defend against a threat that belongs in the past. That's what we're talking about healing here. That's what our coaching program does. That's what I've been through. And I'm going through it every day. I'm, I've healed tremendously from all that I went through. But this is an ongoing journey. But when you are in a constant state of stress response, such as the pandemic and throwing up, it's because your body is responding to what happened to you when you were 8, 12. Like it says here, to a threat that belongs in the past that has not yet been experienced or known about. Like that amazing quote, it said, we have to know what we know and feel what we feel. Right here. We can't get better until we know what we know and feel what we feel. So when we avoid or we don't do this or we don't, we don't have these tools to understand what we know or to understand what happened or to feel what we felt, then we're in constant PTSD mode. Everyone triggers us. Everything. And it could be something legit, like a pandemic or a job loss or a health concern. But you're no longer seeing it for what it is. You're seeing it through all these other lenses of your trauma that's been unhealed, that you still don't know how to speak about it, how to, how to be healed from it, how to give it to Jesus, how to let Him touch and restore that brokenness in you. And so you're responding with activism, perhaps. Maybe you want to hate the government and you hate everyone who reminds you of what your mom went through. You, you despise everyone who reminds you of what your dad did to you. Every man is horrible. Every woman is terrible. And you're looking at it through a lens of trauma and you're in that PTSD response because it's, like it says here, I love this quote, it's defending against the threat that belongs to the past in the past. Knowing the difference between top-down and bottom-up regulation is central for understanding and treating traumatic stress. Let's just finish this paragraph. Van der Kolk states that top-down regulation strengthened with activities such as mindfulness, meditation. Oh, man. I just call it prayer. Whatever you want to call it. When I pray, which I don't do enough, and that's why sometimes I struggle with these things, even though I'm way better than ever. When I pray... I breathe and I do yoga when I exercise, when I eat healthy, when I practice some of these tools, when I pray and seek God and just put on worship music and and teach, it heals me. It heals you. Mindfulness, meditation, prayer, just saying, Lord God, I thank you. And I would say gratitude. I don't like the word gratitude per se. Not that I don't believe in it, but that word maybe doesn't always work for me but what does work is thankfulness is breathing <laughs> breathing that good as prana <laughs> like uh, like uh, infinite water says <clears throat> it's his name rich uh, I forget his name right now uh, not Robert uh, so I love him but when he talks about breathing in that good piranha it's talking about meditation it's talking about the ability to simply just be in the moment and to breathe deeply and to pray to say thank you God thank you Lord thank you thank you God that you love me that I am safe in your arms that I am safe in the arms of love that I am safe in your hands when you practice that that a mindfulness, meditation, prayer, Bible study, being with people, teaching, I would love to do this in real life here in my studio, and maybe someday I will, maybe soon, maybe next month. <laughs> Sign up if you would like to be a part of that, if you're here in the LA area. When we're together practicing these tools, that's why I love it when people are practicing yoga, like 50 people at a park. There's something beautiful when we're together with people and breathing together. Ralph Smart, that's his name. <laughs> Infinite Waters. But when we practice meditation, prayer, breathing, whew, like he says, 
There's something healing about it. Our minds, our bodies, our spirit can connect when we worship, when we sing songs to God. That's why I love church. It is therapeutic, the relationship, seeing that friend that you just love, seeing that, singing that song that you just, ah, you love the words. Being able to help other people serve, to help someone that was just like you, or that is just like you. All those are beautiful things. I think the church is uh, maybe, I would say it is the most healing organism that I know of. I've been to therapy, medication, all these tools. One-on-one, I love teaching, I love coaching. But I would say that the church, that beautiful organism called the church, the body of Christ, it is the most beautiful organism that I know. That's why I've given my life to it. And I want to keep doing it because it heals me, it heals people. And then these tools are the, I think, the, the supplements, kind of the alongside, the paracletes, the aids that can help you to understand, oh, yeah. And when you have someone, a coach that is a spiritual coach, that can combine the two, that can help you to understand how these tools can be used. If these, this is just like, like, yeah, taking your vitamins, right? You're not going to say, well, either my vitamins or church. You don't say, okay, either I'm going to have the green smoothie or church. No, you combine both, right? And so all of these are tools that we can use to supplement our spiritual experience. At the end of the day, it is a spiritual life that we're living. And it's only because our bodies are so broken and we live in this broken world that we deal with trauma and PTSD and all these things. And we have been through things. We experience pain. But at the end of the day, it is the healing community called the Church of Jesus Christ that is the most beautiful entity, organism, body. That's why I love the word body of Christ that heals us, that touches us, that moves us. And it has all these things. The mind, you're learning, the body, you're moving, you're shaking, you're greeting people, and the soul, the spirit. You are enjoying the love in the room and the Spirit of God talking to you. It's just beautiful. So it says here, mindfulness and yoga, there it is, to recalibrate the nervous system. to the, So the brain's watchtower, meaning that part of the brain, the amygdala, most of all, that's always looking for problems and for stress and for dangers, it can be more effectively monitored. And our body's reactions can be more effectively monitored. When you experience, you practice prayer, mindfulness, meditation, gratitude, church, worship, relationship, love, kiss, touch from your person that you love, sexual interaction with your husband, your wife, people you love, with when you experience a great meal together with your friends, exercise, when you experience the fullness of God, the fullness of life, then it, that heals you. Relationships, using your gifts, for me being a musician and a teacher, this touches and heals me because I know that it can be helpful to other people. It brings me life. And so it says here, when we do all these things, it recalibrates the nervous system. Don't you feel better? I hope that you feel better just in these few minutes here together. I do. I feel better. Just calm down. Uh, all those fears and concerns, and I need tos, and I should do this, and all the woulda, coulda, all that stuff, it goes by the wayside when we spend time doing this. And it gives us the energy to go and take care of business. And so that the brain's watchtower can more effectively monitor our body's reactions. Bottom-up regulation happens through breath. Ah. Whew. Breathing. <laughs> Look at us, piranha baby. <laughs> Bottom-up regulation happens through breath, one of the few body functions that is automatic and self-regulatory. Well, it's not so automatic for most of us when we're under stress because we do that shortness of breath thing, that short breathing, that rapid breathing, which is what the body does when it's in stress or fight or flight. But when we do deep breathing, Jesus-centered prayer, as some call it, or Jesus breathing or spirit breathing, my wife always says, breathe in the Holy Spirit and breathe out all the devil stuff. Breathe in the Holy Spirit. <sighs> breathe out all the hate and violence and depression and anxiety and the devil's plans for you and for me. And so it says your bottom-up regulation happens through breath, movement, or touch. How I wish we could touch. There's a bug here. 
embrace again all doing it properly non-sexual touch nst as they call it non-sexual touch embrace share cry together love we're coming up on mother's day spring we just went through easter all these beautiful experiences that we've had to maybe cut off from our lives these last few years. It's important that we embrace each other. Um, as much as I love teaching through this camera, I I love interaction. It's 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 our healing. It's not a personality thing or oh bugs and viruses. Yes, that's the unfortunate reality of maybe for the rest of our lives. I don't know. But there's something healing, you can read it here from the scientists and doctors and people way smarter than me, that touch, movement, breath, these three things. If you can take anything from this first part of this training is are these three things here. The, well, that quote up there, but then the breath, movement, and touch. That is how regulation happens, especially self-regulation. You don't have to go see a therapist or a, or a spiritual coach. I encourage you to because this is what we do. And you're supporting also my my ministry and my efforts through the programs that I offer. But it is self-regulatory. You can do it yourself. Breath. <sighs> Movement. Ah. Touch. Even tapping, you know. And maybe you don't know about tapping, but self-tapping, self-hug. When you feel alone. When you feel depressed, lonely, non-sexual touch, very important. Or ask your mom, give me a hug, mom. Ask your little brother, can you hold me? Hold your cat, <laughs> kiss your dog. <laughs> if you're married, my goodness, hug your wife, kiss your wife. If you're a young man, a young woman, as I said, non-sexual with your girlfriend, boyfriend, hug, hold each other. Therapeutic interventionists need to do both. As need to do both. That's again. I don't know. This translation is off. Therapeutic interventionists need to do both. As self-regulation requires connection with. Oh, okay. Need to do both. Gotcha. Therapeutic interventionists need to do both. Well, there are three things, but let's just say both. As self-regulation requires connection with the body. Both meaning the body body and the soul but I would say really it's three things the body the soul and the mind so I hope that speaking of mind that this training this first half has stimulated your mind has brought you peace to your soul has brought a sense of knowledge and peace and spirit and I do want to talk about my program it is a hundred bucks a month thousand dollars a year you can pay it in two payments or in four payments or month to month. And this is what we address. We talk about PTSD and we talk about healing trauma. We talk about how to overcome the experiences that we've been through, how to, and, and I do it in a spiritual life coaching understanding, with that understanding that, as I said, we're talking about a spiritual life we're living a spiritual life in a human experience, as I think C.S. Lewis said. And so we're not just going to be talking about the body. Of course we are. But we're talking about all three aspects, the body, the mind, and the soul. And at the end of the day, as I said, it is about the spirit and worship and the experience of the divine, of nature, of being outside and experiencing the fullness of this beautiful life that we live and shedding all the pain and trauma and, and with those things that are difficult, that are experiences that maybe we're going through today to learn to have a better response, a more proper response to those things, to take action so that we can make a difference in the world and serve people in need and stand for justice and love and peace. So I hope that helps. If you'd like to be a part of my program, go to the link here, davidtree.com slash spiritual life coaching. It's only $100 a month, $1,000 a year. I would encourage you to do it for a year, at least six months. We can talk every week. We can talk every month. We can do it FaceTime, WhatsApp, in person if you're in the area. Whatever tool we have. There's so many. Zoom, of course. 
so that we can begin the journey together of your power and of your joy, of your gozo. Return to the joy of my salvation, said, said David. Lord, I pray, he said, that you would return to me the joy of my salvation, meaning the joy of living once again. And so that's what I'm here to do, to help you. It's what I've done for 30 years, really, yeah, I would say at least 30 years. And it's now what I do for other people, especially young people, young adults, as I said. I know young adults don't have a lot of money, so that's why the, the, the prices are low. But I do want it to be an investment that supports my ministry and my job and my content. But most of all, it's an investment that you're making. The $1,000 will make you $10,000. That's what I always say to people. Because when your mind, your body, and your soul is healthy, you will get that job, get that girl, buy that house, uh, keep your car, and uh, stay away from drugs and alcohol and violence and perfectionism and legalism and all the rest. And so it will bring you health, peace, love, kindness, financial success in Jesus' name. Okay, let me know how I can help you. Thank you again for being here. I will see you next time.